Hey guys, welcome back to A Natural State of Murder. I'm your host, Jess, and as always, I'm very excited for you to be here. Today, we have a guest host with us. Hey guys. And that is my son, Logan. Um, it's been a minute since we have been here, um, but we're excited to be back. And with that being said, we are going to go ahead and pick up where we left off with Zodiac Part 2. So on Friday, July 4th, 1969, it was around midnight and Darlene Farron and Mike Majot were parked at the Blue Rock Springs Golf Course in the parking lot. It was located just four miles from downtown Vallejo, California. And this area, it was also another well-known Lover's Lane area. And it was actually only a couple of miles from Lake Herman Road, where David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen had been murdered just like seven months prior. Like it wasn't that long. Um, wasn't that long ago. Hadn't even been a year. Um, there are different couple accounts um, from different sources. You know, some say that that Darlene and Mike went there and parked there intentionally to talk. Um, some say that they were actually followed there and Mike felt like they may have been forced into that parking lot. With that version of the story, and, and, it, and it was in one of, one of Mike's accounts, um, he said that Darlene had picked him up, um, just before midnight, and he said that almost as soon as they left his home, they were being followed, like someone had been waiting for them to leave. Um, and he had reported to at least one person that Darling was driving and took random turns and turned down side streets, like, you know, like she's trying to lose this car. Yeah. And um, the car kept following them at a high rate of speed. And at that point, they ended up in the parking lot, and Mike, in this version of the story, Mike said that she pulled into that parking lot so quickly that she hit a log and it actually made her car stall. Um, and the car, it ended up parking behind them, kind of like with the front of his car was mm. even with the back of Darlene's car. Okay. And um, Mike described the car as light in color. He said it was a light brown. And he thought that it may have been a 58 or 59 Falcon. Um, Darlene drove a Corvair, and he thought that the car was similar to the Corvair, but it was not a Corvair. It was not a Corvair. Um, at this point, all he could say was that the driver was male and that the car had California plates. And... Mike said that he asked Darlene if she knew who it was, and her response was, never mind, don't worry about it. And now, Logan, like, Mike said he didn't know what she meant by, like, she did, he didn't know what she meant by that. Like, did that mean that she knew who it was? Oh, never mind, we have no reason to be worried. Or, never mind, it doesn't matter either way. <clears throat> I think it's just, I don't know, because they were out on a date or something. Obviously, so I feel like it was she was trying to focus on that and not really like I don't know. I just feel like she, it, I don't think she thought of anything about it. You think that she meant she was like a never mind, like don't worry about it. It's nothing to be concerned about. Yeah, because like they had already like like they had already like stopped driving. They were pulled like they were parked somewhere. You know, and if that's the case, I mean, it really depends. 
I guess it really depends on which version of the story is correct. Because on, in one version that he initially gave to police, Mike said she picked him up and they drove down there to the parking lot to park and talk. Mm. In the version that he told, you know, at least a couple of different people, it was a little more dramatic, like someone was following them and kind of forced them into that parking lot. So, I guess it depends on which version of the story is correct. You know, if somebody was following them and, like, forced them into the parking lot, and she made that comment, oh, never mind, don't worry about it, I would think that that means, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. But if they just happened to drive, if they really just drove out there and parked just to talk, and then someone pulls in behind them, and Mike's like, hey, who is that? I could see her being, oh, don't worry about it, you know, never mind. Yeah, well, also, I feel like she got out of the car and, like, probably say something. And she knew him. Yeah, and that's true. If it was somebody that she knew, she may have gotten out of the car to talk to him. Um, but either way, the car ended up leaving almost immediately. However... About five minutes later, the car came back and parked behind them again. And this time, he pulled in behind them, and his car was kind of sideways. And it was this, he he was parked in a position, the way Mike described it, it's a, it's a maneuver that police use, like if they're trying to block someone in. Yeah. And then the, um, there was a spotlight that was shined on them from the car, and the driver got out of the car, and it looked like he was um, holding a flashlight out. And, you know, as he was walking towards the car. And this kind of made Mike feel that it was a police officer. And he got his ID out. He encouraged Arlene to get her ID out. She pulled her ID out of her purse. And then the man was at the passenger side of the car, and he had the light shined on him in their faces, and it blinded them like the light was so bright. And neither one of them actually saw this man's face because of the, you know, because the light was so bright. Um, and then the man, he just started shooting. Mike said all he saw was a flash, smoke, and then he felt blood and he felt pain. Darlene slumped over. Um, at this point, she had been hit twice in both arms, five times in the right side of her back, and at least one of those bullets had had nicked her lung, and then also the left ventricle of her heart. Uh, Mike tried to get out of the car, and he was not able to because the door handle on the inside of the car, on the passenger side, it had been removed, and this guy, he stopped shooting, and he walks back to his car, leaves without saying a word. And he's back at his car. He's doing something with the inside of his car like he's about to get in it. And Mike was able to see his face. And um, from the light, you know, like if you open your door and the, you know, the light comes on. And Mike was able to see his face in in the light of the car. And he described him as having a large face. He was not wearing glasses. He looked to be about 25 to 30 years old had short, curly, light brown hair, and he wore it in a military-style <laughs> haircut. Um, he was heavy. This was Mike's words. He said that he was heavy set, but not blubbery fat. Um, he looked to weigh approximately 195 to 200 pounds, looked like he was about 5'8". He had a slight pot belly, 
Um, and the pants that he was wearing had pleats in them. And then also at this, at this time, Mike, he's in a lot of pain. He's in a lot of pain because he, you know, obviously he's been shot as well. And he cries out in pain and yells out in agony. And the, of course, the shooter hears this. And so the shooter comes back and he fires two more shots at Mike. And Mike kicked out with his legs trying to defend himself. Mm-hmm. And he actually kicked himself back in, like into the back seat. At Mike's hitting the knee, you know, causing even more pain. And the shooter also fired two more shots at Darlene. And then the shooter, he leaves again. Like, he thinks he's finished his job. He's completed his task, you know, his mission. And uh, Mike was finally able to get out of the car and got onto the ground from the back seat. And he's wounded in his left knee, his right arm, his neck. He um, also had a wound that entered his right cheek and exited his left cheek. And that bullet also tore, like, completely through his tongue. So he has this gaping hole in his tongue as well. Um, And Mike, while he was out on the ground, he said that he could still hear Darlene moaning from the car. So at this point, Darlene's still alive as well. And then around midnight, George Bryant, who lived within 800 feet of the golf course, he reported that he heard gunshots and then a vehicle speeding off at a high rate of speed. And around the same time, there were three teenagers that were out driving around looking for their friend and they saw Darlene's car in the parking lot. And so they drove up to see if it was their friend or to see if their friend was with this person. And so they came up on them just by chance. Like it was just chance. Um, And of course they find this absolute horror scene, like this scene of horrors and they leave and go to get help. And at 12, 10 AM, they call the Vallejo PD and report that there's been a shooting. Um, Detective John Lynch and a Sergeant Ed Russ reported to the scene. Um, They would later report that they actually felt some guilt because they had gotten a call earlier, about 10 minutes earlier, that there were gunshots. And they didn't immediately respond because, you know, it's the 4th of July. And so what's going on 4th of July? Fireworks. Bunch of fireworks. And so they assumed that it it was probably just firework activity. And then Mike and Darlene, when they arrive on scene, Mike and Darlene, both of them are still still alive at this point. Um, Mike has that horrible wound to his face and to and through his tongue, so he's barely like he's barely able to talk. He's not able to communicate very well at all. Um, wasn't able to give them too much information, you know, right up front. Um, they were able to recover some nine millimeter slugs at the scene, and then as far as Mike, one thing that was really odd about Mike is that he was wearing three pairs of pants and three sweaters, a long sleeve button-up shirt, and a t-shirt. And you have to remember, once again, this was 4th of July, and this was a particularly hot night, even for Northern California. I wonder if that helped him a little bit with his wounds. Like, helped with the gunshot wounds? Yeah. I mean, it probably... It might have to a point, but, you know, there were even, they were shot at close range, and there were bullets that went through Mike that also ended up going through Darlene. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know how much it helped him, but it was a little odd. Um, But his explanation for that is Mike had a twin brother. So, Darlene is 22 years old. Mike and his twin brother are 19 years old, and they both had it really bad for Darlene. Both had it bad for Darlene. 
And honestly, they would argue over her. Like, they would fight over, they would take turns doing her laundry, for example, and they would argue with each other over whose turn it was to do Darlene's laundry this time. But either way, both of them were very skinny. Well, Mike is very, very skinny. Mm -hmm. And so his excuse for all this clothing is that he wanted to look, like, thicker. Like, he wanted to look bulkier, like, look bigger for Darlene. He's had to eat. <laughs> you just have to eat. How did yeah. you bulk up? I would eat freaking. Like, I'd eat like little Caesar pizzas. <laughs> I literally ate a whole little Caesar's pizza. <laughs> so he just needs to eat him some food. Yeah, and go to the gym. <laughs> eat him some food and go to the gym. <laughs> but anyways, they were both taken by ambulance to the hospital. There was another officer, Officer Hoffman that rode in the ambulance with them in the event that Darlene, you know, that she may be able to talk. However, Darlene was pronounced dead on arrival at 1238 a.m. And unfortunately, Darlene did not survive. Um, however, at 1240 a.m., uh, Vallejo PD operator Nancy Slover received a call from a man. You know, she said, like, his voice didn't shake. He never wavered. She kind of described him as... You know, his voice was calm, but he was very intense. And this is what he said. I want to report a double murder. If you will go out one mile east on Columbia Parkway to the public park, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. So now, we have somebody that, I mean, pretty immediately that's claiming responsibility for what he believes is a double murder. You know, he, he thinks Mike and Darlene are both dead. And he's also claiming responsibility for the murder of David and Betty Lou seven months prior. I wonder if he got angry about that when he found out that he didn't actually kill him. Well, at this point, he thinks they're both dead. I'm talking about when it came out in the news. That one survived? Mm. It probably made him feel some kind of way. I mean, because he's calling and taking responsibility for it. <clears throat> and so it makes him feel stupid, I guess. But also, it makes you wonder, like, if, you, if you're wanting the attention and you're wanting to um, make yourself look like you're a big, like, big bad dude, I don't know, taking responsibility for it. Why wouldn't you have called in and why wouldn't you have claimed responsibility for Betty Lou and David just seven months prior? I don't know. I feel like a lot of serial killers, like their first one, like they always like, like if you ever watch like a documentary or like, I obviously have, but like, I feel like the first one's always like weird. And then, then when they get to like second ones and third ones. Like they, like, they find things that they like. Maybe this was just something that he liked. He figured out it was... It was just, like, a thing that... He was like, oh, I should try this next time. Oh, maybe to, like, speed things along. Not necessarily that he wants to get caught, but sometimes there's that excitement. It makes him seem scary. You know, it's just as exciting. It's like scream. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is if you're taking responsibility, it's, oh, now we have a serial killer... And, you know, that puts fear in people. And it terrorizes people. He probably gets some enjoyment out of that as well. 
Yeah, he has power over people. Um, so anyways, at 1247, like seven minutes after this phone call was made, they were able to trace the call to a payphone, but this payphone was directly across from the Vallejo Police Department, and Darlene's home was also within eyesight of this phone booth. Um, I mean, that's odd. That makes you, I mean, that's pretty ballsy to commit this murder claim responsibility for this murder and make that phone call from right across the street of the Vallejo Police Department. And it's also within, you can see Darlene's house. Yeah. As far as the papers in the car, it showed that the car belonged to Arthur Farron, and that was Darlene's father-in-law. So he was the first one that was contacted about the incident and also the first one that was contacted about her death. Um, they had to send an officer to Mike's home to notify his parents because they were unable to reach them by phone. The investigation began, and it had been almost seven months since the murder of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen. Like I said, it was just a couple of miles from where um, Darlene and Mike had just been shot. You know, now we have one that's dead, we have another that's severely injured, and an unknown man is claiming responsibility for both incidents. On the top layer, as they dig into this murder, however, it looks like maybe they aren't starting from square one like they were with um, Betty Lou and David. So, for example, that same night, Darlene's husband, Dean, Darlene's husband, Dean, planned to have some friends over for the 4th of July for a party after he got off work. Um, So, Darlene was married, and they also had a daughter, Dina, who was only a year old. Uh, Dean had asked Darlene to go and get fireworks for the party. He worked past midnight, and when he got home with the friends, Darlene was not there, but the girls that she had bought babysitting uh, Dina, they were still there. They said Darlene had come home earlier, had taken a call, and then she was gonna. She said that she was leaving, that she's going to go back out and get fireworks. Dean ended up taking these girls home and went out looking for Darlene, because at that point, for whatever reason, like she had been gone for a while and there was reason to believe that she had already purchased those fireworks before she came home that evening. Well, you know, we know now that phone call that she received came from Mike Majot. Yeah. And then she went to pick Mike up. Uh, Dean's friends, they're still at the house, kind of waiting for this party to start. One of those friends, his name's Bill Lee. He answered the phone because, you know, Dean and Darlene's phone rang. And he reported that all he heard was this heavy, like, heavy breathing on the other end of the line. And he said he really just suspected that it was one of Darlene's weird-ass friends. All of these friends kind of had issues with Darlene always went out. Like, she was always going out. She was never at home with her husband and daughter. And, you know, they had issues with that. Um, of course, Dean, he really didn't think much of it. He was under the impression that she had a group of girls that she liked to hang out with. They would go out, go dancing, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, he did not feel like she was up to anything malicious. He thought she was just young and she's going out with her girlfriends. Uh, Dean's parents, um, and then his brother, they don't live at the same home. They both have their own separate homes. They reported that they both got the same phone calls, and this was all within an hour of shooting. So they both got phone calls as well 
just this heavy breathing on the end of the line. Nobody ever says anything. At this point, like, this had not hit the news yet. So it's not, like, widespread known information. And even the friends that are still at Darlene's house, they don't even, they don't even know that she's been murdered yet. And the call to dispatch was made from that phone booth that was directly across the street from the police department. And it was in, it, it was within eyesight of Darlene's home. And like just with the phone calls and all this and where that phone call was made from, Darlene's reaction, according to Mike, you know, it, it's starting to feel like the killer was somebody that Darlene knew. Yeah. Uh, Mike ended up having emergency surgery the next morning. He did survive this incident, but this is at the point that Mike's story, it starts to change a little bit, and he also told a few different stories to a few different people. Now, I will say this. The big the big source for this one is the book Zodiac by Robert, Robert Graysmith, and Robert was dead set on this one suspect i mean he was 100 in that that was the suspect and i will say zodiac it's you know it's a good book it's got a lot of information in it it's just my issue with it is i feel like sometimes it's a little hard to keep up with i think sometimes from page to page he kind of contradicts himself a little bit and then but i also there's a second book and it's all about that suspect and we'll talk about that later, but, you know, later on in the series. But if you read Zodiac and some of the things that he includes that you don't necessarily see in other sources, I sometimes get the feeling that maybe he talked to people that gave, not that he's lying, not that he's lying. He's not lying. I believe that he was told this information, but I think sometimes he intentionally you know, like he talked to people that gave him the information that he was looking for to make this case fit his narrative, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, but anyways, according to that book, like, you know, the story started changing. He told a different story to a few, you know, to a few different people. Um, so to the police, he said that he and Darlene had that they went to get something to eat. And they turned around at a place called Mr. Ed's and drove to the golf course parking lot to sit out there and talk. And then he told Darlene's sister that the shooter knew Darlene because he called her D um, before he started shooting. And D was something that her friends called her. You know, those closest to her, they called her D. This was not information, as far as I can tell in any other source, this was not information that he gave to the police yeah not that his story changed there well yeah it did change but it's it, that's a big piece of information to leave out um and then there was another woman named sue ayers um he told her that darlene had gotten into an argument with someone at terry's in the parking lot now terry's is a restaurant and that's where darlene worked as a waitress and um he said later the argument, the same guy is the one that parked behind him at Blue Rock Springs. And this is where he, you know, he said that they, the guy had followed them there. And after Darlene had picked him up and he said that the argument continued there in the Blue Rock Springs parking lot. Um, so 
I don't know. We got a few different versions of events, but in those version of versions of events, is it the same guy or is Mike adding to the story? You also got to realize that this also happened after he had to have emergency surgery. Mm-hmm. So he's like doped up on pain medicine and he's been doped up on anesthesia. And then there's also the issue that this was a very traumatic event. And how many cases do you see like these huge traumatic events that the victims they there's bits and bits and pieces and sometimes even big long you know lengths of time that they don't remember. Yeah, they're usually like get triggered by something like they start remembering they're like oh this happened I remember this. Yeah, and sometimes what they remember may not necessarily be accurate. I mean because it's traumatic. And that trauma, like, it can it can do a lot to your memory. It, it does a lot to your brain. I mean, look at PTSD. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people do we know that, you know, have lived not necessarily, you know, through an attempted murder, but any type of traumatic event, and it, it affects their entire personality like mm-hmm. P- with PTSD. You know, it's a real thing. So whoever this guy was that maybe Darlene got into an argument with at Terry's in the parking lot, Maybe it was the same guy that followed them, if there was a guy that followed them out to the golf course. Um, you know, that's, we'll just say, you know, that's a person of interest. Yeah. Um, the next person, of an, uh, next person of interest was a man named Paul. Um, Dean, Darlene's husband, had sold Paul a truck. And his name, when they were interviewing people, his name actually came up a few times that first night. Uh, now, Darlene... Depends on who you talk to, but Darlene kind of had a reputation, or the rumor was, you know, that she liked to date around even though she was married. Yeah. Even those, you know, even by those accounts from her friends that knew about Mike, they say that Mike was the only one at the time. Like, there had been several other boyfriends, but at this point in time, Mike was the only one. However, I just recently watched a... Uh, it's this new documentary that's on Peacock, and it's called The Myth of Zodiac. Hmm. And I actually recommend you go watch it. It gives a completely different spin to, to um, you know, this investigation. But her sister, Chris, and her ex-husband well, at the time, Dean, they are both on that documentary. And they absolutely deny that Darlene and Mike were having an affair, that they were just really good friends. Yeah, but I don't know how you go parking with, you know, if you're a married person. and It may just be to let protect her name because she's a murder victim. Could be. You know, and at the end of the day, like, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I feel like it, feel like it could because what if it's connected to Mike? I mean, that's significant, you know, the nature of their relationship. But on the other hand, it really doesn't matter because she's a murder victim and nobody deserves what happened to her. And nobody deserves what happened to Mike either. Um, but anyways, they swear that that was just a friendship, but Paul, um, Paul was really into Darlene, um, and he wanted to date her. And there were a few different people that said he hounded her about that quite a bit and she was not interested, but he, uh, he hounded her quite regularly. I mean, to the point it was like, he almost became obsessive. And he would go into her work on a weekly basis, sometimes multiple times a week, and harass her while she was at work. Um, 
next person of interest, Darlene had previously been married to a man um, that she saw as dangerous and that she was afraid of. He had gotten in trouble with drugs and Darlene had also mentioned to more than one person that she had witnessed him commit a murder when they were in the Virgin Islands. And so, you know, if that's true, I'm sure that this was somebody that she was very afraid of. Yeah. Also in that same documentary, I read about how that first husband was quite, he was abusive. Um, he, they lived in an apartment in Vallejo and he wouldn't allow her to sleep in the bed, wouldn't allow her to sleep on the couch or whatnot. Like he'd make her sleep in the floor when he was angry with her and, uh, you know, things of that nature. In fact, they were still married when her and Dean started dating. And uh, Dean, just by all accounts, uh, Dean saved her from a pretty bad situation. So he's a person of interest. Uh, another person of interest was Mike's twin brother, who was also very obsessed with Darlene. I mean, like I said, they would fight over her. And while Mike's family reported he had been in Southern California, because remember, we're in Northern California, um, there, uh, they said that he had been in Southern California for like the last five weeks and was living there when Darlene was killed. Um, there were some reports that came from people that knew the Majou family or Majou family and um, that said that wasn't necessarily true. And then that makes you wonder, is this another reason why Mike's story may have changed? And did, I mean, did he have, did he have a reason to protect his brother from something? Could it have been his brother? I don't know. I don't think it was his brother. Because it was... Because they were all pretty close. And, like... I know that they would fight over who got to do stuff for her. But it's like... It's like... I think it's more just like a brotherly thing. Like, it's just like a... Like competitive? Like a flirtatious act. Yeah. Well, and I don't necessarily think... I don't think... I mean, maybe it's because, you know, we're this this happened in 1969. We're now in 2023. And this is one of the most, you know, talked about cases of our time. But I just don't think that he would have been a viable person of interest for me. Because let's say that Mike is trying to protect him. And that's why he changes his story up some. Um, a... Mike would have, he would have known if this was his brother. You know, remember, he got a good look at his face. Mm. And even if he were trying to protect his brother, why would he try to do that? Not only did he just murder Darlene, but he tried to murder Mike as well. I mean, and he, whoever it was, walked away from that scene thinking that Darlene and Mike were both dead. So, I mean, would you try to, would you try to protect someone that just, you know, murdered your love interest and... And, and try to kill you. Yeah, I don't think it was his brother. I don't either. I don't think he was ever a viable person of interest. And then there was also mention of another man that seemed to give Darlene some trouble. And this guy, he would sit outside of her home when she was not there, like, sit in his car. And, um, like, he was just, like, waiting for her or just watching the house. Um, sometimes he would leave random packages at the door. Um, he was also at the home once with Darlene and her sister and some other men. Darlene and Dean had just moved into the house and she wanted the walls painted. And so Darlene had a painting party and had all these people come over to help her paint the walls. And this man was one of them. 
And according to Darlene's sister, um, Darlene told her sister to stay away from him, that he was dangerous. And the problem with this guy is that no one could recall his name. And then they even, they were like, you know what? She never really told us what his name was. So it was like nobody ever actually knew his name. Um, but he, he was also a person of interest. Um, but at this point, you know, they just have, you know, they have some suspicions. Yeah. And, you know, that's as, that's as far as we have gotten at this point. Um, but what nobody else, no, what nobody knows at the time, um, I'm sure they probably suspect it because, you know, now we have a serial killer. But, uh, you know, the entire San Francisco area, Vallejo, um, they're going to hear from the killer again. And what they realize is, at that time, what they're going to realize quickly is that this killer is just getting started. So, anyways, guys, we are going to leave it there. Um, we will see you back next week for part three. Um, either at the beginning of the week or um, later this weekend, uh, we will have the Georgia episode so next week you will be getting two episodes thank you so much for being with us today and we hope to see you back next time bye bye